the British, the British dream. Below our expectations. We're about to be the whole country. We're about to be the country. Wonderful to be here. The British Dream Podcast. Join us. Powerful people as we launch our despicable acts like these and the sickening and barbaric politics. What I hate about this Shut up in your face. is that it's so violent. When the next phase of this disaster comes, they will come for you. Hello and welcome to the British Dream, Vice's politics podcast. My name is Simon Childs, Home Affairs Editor at Vice.com. I know that many people have found this effect. Try to calm down. Here we go. Here we go. Okay. And behave like an... This week, Boris Johnson said that women who wear the burqa look like letterboxes and bank robbers. He was accused of Islamophobic dog whistling. Talking points that could be described as far right are becoming an ever more humdrum part of what we hear and read in the news. But is this fascism sneaking under the guise of conservatism? Or is that just alarmist liberal paranoia? My guest today is Hussein Kazvani... Hussein is the Europe editor of Mail magazine. He also once managed to troll former Breitbart editor Rahim Kassam by pretending to be his cousin. I guess maybe I wanted to start with how has it been for you following the discourse? I guess since, let's start when Trump came. Ever since then, there's been a sort of vibe or a feeling in the air and in the airwaves yeah, it's just exhausting, isn't it? It's just very tiring. So what I've noticed is that... So I remember when Trump got elected on a, on like one of those really packed buses from Cardiff back to London. Mm-hmm. And for that whole like two-hour journey, I was just on my phone like for the whole thing. And by the time I got off, like I was just completely exhausted. Just like not even posting anything. And I think that like kind of, kind of sets like a really good precursor for like what's happened since then, where every day is just incredibly stupid. Every day you just go to bed like absolutely exhausted because you've invested so much time in just like all the kind of stupidity that's gone on. And I think that's kind of the weird thing that sort of happened. It, it went from, like, super scary, what does the next four years or eight years hold? And that's still there. Like, you know, I think deep down a lot of us are, like, afraid. But it's not this kind of perpetual fear in the sense that we're always, like, a stone's throw away from... We're kind of seeing everything. We're seeing everything really quickly. And we're dealing with, like, what's happening in the real world, but we're also what's happening in like these so-called culture wars Mm. when you think about that it's kind of like that's a lot of input of information going in in a really short time so yeah like it's just been exhausting do you think that we're kind of on a a next level or like a new plane in terms of talking points that you could argue are pretty far right are now just like what you hear i think it was happening before the trump thing definitely happening before the trump thing i think there's like this big cultural shift in like you know, I guess we call it like the Overton window. Mm-hmm. And I think like it's kind of moved significantly since the Trump election, but actually probably before I was seeing it. I was seeing it in 2015 in real life. I think that's I think that's the difference. I think it's like lots of people are noticing all these things happening in like politics. So these kind of talking points, these identitarian talking points that you would usually only tend to hear from kind of UKIP people, stuff that even like Farage used to back back away from, mm-hmm. um, are now being embraced not just by UKIP people, but by like mainstream conservative Tories, parts of like the Labour Party, even like I think some Liberal Democrats have kind of like, you know, in, in the midst of a whole, um, you know, anti-identity politics thing, they have like adopted talking points, which like you would tend to only 
only here in in like UKIP or like in kind of right wing areas of politics. Like what kind of thing? With, with so, you know, stuff about it's some some stuff tends to be fairly milquetoast. So like I think Tim Farron at some point he did an interview about like kind of rejecting identity politics, and that's fine. I mean, I, I think there's an argument to kind of say that when you were talking about political mobilization identity politics kind of has its limits i think there is a decent argument to be made there Mm. but then they kind of like back their point up using like fairly like mundane examples so for example it's kind of like basically suggesting that you should you know not kind of talk about race and racism or that you know you should kind of use very minimal analysis when you're talking about like disabilities and stuff like that especially like invisible disabilities things that they believe are in good faith maybe Mm. that's kind of the most charitable charitable thing you can kind of say that they're saying it in good faith because they want to kind of get rid of you know the right wing and stuff but in so doing they're sort of feeding a culture which is very much about at the very least pushing away groups of very vulnerable marginal people who are like basically going to be at the receiving end of like any sort of right wing like policy agenda regardless of whether it's trump or regardless of whether it's like the tories or ukip or something like that yeah and i don't feel like um the lib dems have some kind of interesting nuanced kind of critique of the limits of identity politics it's, yeah. it's more just like oh actually did you know that we're stronger together as, as, yeah, as yeah. British people or whatever but, then but that's not just like Lib Dems that's just kind of just like centrism generally right and maybe we'll talk about this a bit later but it's kind of like I don't really see things in terms of political parties anymore I kind of see it in terms of like political wings so you've got you know far left groups and you've got far right groups and then you've got like you know this kind of ambiguous group of centrists and the, the ambiguous group of centrists are like the ones that everyone gets a annoyed about partially because they don't really know what they're trying to say or what they're trying to advocate mm. you know it's very much again it's about kind of using like pre-2015 kind of slogans um when they talk about racism it's very kind of milk toast diluted you know everyone is equal type of stuff like that without really kind of looking at where the problems of those because those things were like policy back in like the new labor period right they were like manifested in policy and in many ways like you know the failures of those policies have led to where we are so it sort of doesn't make sense why we want to go back to them and i think this is sort of what annoys a lot of people about like centrists Mm. um it's not necessarily that they think that like what they're doing is in bad faith or that they're bad people it's just like it feels like as if it's like redundant politics And so in our sort of new fashy reality. Yeah. I mean, that's the, when you're saying about like the, these things are policy under new labor and stuff. Beyond the very obvious difference of like you now have the president of America saying very concerning stuff. Yeah. What do you think the sort of difference in terms of like the political discourse is between, say, the new labor years where you had, you know, building of migrant detention centers. Yeah. And now the discourse is so terrifying yeah and i feel like maybe suddenly everyone's paying attention to all this stuff that was kind of in a a lot of cases there already yeah because it's like a really scary time right i think there's very few people who were like properly like lefty socialists before like all the kind of chaos happened whether that was like brexit chaos and stuff like that there's been very few moments that have really been like particularly defining particularly for i guess a generation of like younger millennials right so I think the biggest moment before then was the Iraq war. And when the Iraq war was called, I was like, what, 13, 14 years old. 
you know, I couldn't afford a train ticket into London to, like, protest, never mind anything else. It wasn't really a priority for me because, you know, when you're a young teenager, you don't really care. Mm. I think there's a couple of things going on. I think that we're in a situation at the moment where, like, a lot of, like, the politics that has informed British life for such a long time has collapsed. The most visible example of that is the 2008 financial crisis, mm-hmm. right? That was the most visible example of how, like, business as it was, like, was not working. And even then, like, people were kind of just saying that, you know, this isn't going to be, like, a generational change. This is just something that happens. It's just boom and busts. Everything will go back to normal. But we tend to, like, forget how important and influential that was as, like, a cultural moment, right? Because it was, like, one of the first times that young people were, like, very active about being concerned about their future and thinking that, like, shit, the system that we're in, you know, it isn't really working for us. We're going to be, like, loaded in debt for the rest of our lives. You know, we're working jobs that, like, may not, like, lead anywhere. This is also where, like, economies change as well, right? The idea of, like, having jobs for life or, like, having long-term jobs of career strategies. And now we've sort of moved to, like, a very managerial economy where at the top end you're going to make a lot of money if you're a consultant and kind of mid to bottom, like, you're kind of working year to year or month to month. And now we've got, like, gig economy stuff where not only do you work month to month or even, like, week to week, but you're supposed to embrace that right mm. it's supposed to say but yeah this is like a dynamic part of like being a young person and i love like living in a we work and stuff like that yeah. you know and i think for a lot of young people regardless of whether they're on the left or whether they're on the right like that experience is still like a fairly universal thing and i think a lot a lot of them can kind of agree that oh this is actually pretty shit mm. on the right they kind of think that the answer is like going back to traditionalism and that's why we hear all the kind of stuff about you know returning to like patriarchal values and like families being like really super important and like you know women staying at home and raising kids and stuff like that and then on the left it's kind of like looking for answers of like how do we transcend the economy that we're in like how do we expand the imagination and that's where you've got things like you know fully automated luxury communism where you've got stuff like restructuring um you know fairer society that's why the corbyn message is still really powerful And it's always going to be powerful regardless of, like, whether you get rid of him or not. And this is also something that, like, you know, centrist Labour people don't understand, but it's not necessarily him. It's not the cult around him. It's more like the message of going back to normal isn't an answer and it's not a tenable answer. And then so that's the sort of cultural background music or mood music to how you end up with... Raheem Kassan being on the radio or whatever. Uh, I mean, I wouldn't kind of say, you know, I wouldn't go to Adam Curtis and that's how we ended up with this situation. Yeah. But um, I wouldn't go that. But I would say that, like, that you have to understand that as, like, your background for everything else. You have to understand that regardless of what type of political direction that you choose, those realities are always going to be there. And this is why the economic argument is, like, a really important one to win, right? When we're talking about, like, fascism, my feeling is that the growth of fascism and populist fascism Mm. comes from economic problems. Mm. It comes from the idea that when economies don't work, you always look for someone or something to blame. And right-wing parties have really seized on the moment. They've seized on the moment where, you know, half the world is in total war, where you've got the greatest amount of refugees leaving, like, these areas of war, you know, these areas that have been torn by warfare in, like, modern human history. And lots of those people don't come from Europe. They don't come from white, like the predominantly white English-speaking countries. Mm. You know, the visuals of that are really powerful to use 
You mean by, like a kind of Farage poster? Yeah, like, like Farage posters, you know, um, refugees on boats. Mm. You know, whenever you look at like right wing populist stuff online, that's always the stuff that they use. You know, they're not, they don't overtly target like, you know, your settled immigrant family. No. Yeah. You know, I'm sure they will at some point, but they don't do that just yet. They use these photos that they get from like the AP or from Reuters or something. And they can build like scare stories out of that. Yeah, like complete myths about um, yeah. massive muscular men coming over for and, and and stealing their girlfriends and stuff like that. Yeah, you know, kind of like weird kind of cuckoldry mm. like things. That's a really big thing on the right wing internet. But being cucks, being cucked, and just like their obsession with like black to the porn, the porn stuff. Yeah, it's like this really weird obsession. I mean, so like the Soros example, mm. that's now something that you will just hear from like yeah. elected politicians. Nick Timothy wrote that column yes, about it, right? in the Telegraph. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, just in the last couple of weeks as well. It's just like I keep on hearing Soros from like, not from like <laughs> mainstream exactly sources, but from yeah. like, say like UKIP people. Yeah. Well, yeah, actually, Gerard Batten, I think, was talking yeah. about George Soros on Radio 4. Yeah. And it's like, he's not like mainstream, but he's not not mainstream. And, and he's he's kind of taking these fringe ideas yeah. that are like basically batshit conspiracy theories yeah and putting them out onto radio 4 yeah basically unchallenged the media is a really interesting one so you know like jared batten like he has courted like paul joseph watson and yes they've all joined Sar- that UK. guy in swindon sargon uh, sargon of yeah yeah and someone else as well the, uh, the Count, scottish Count guy Dankula, yeah the guy yeah the they all have like really part. stupid names don't they yeah they have like tapped into right-wing internet culture and for jared batten it's kind of like he's now kind of viewing ukip as like the cultural party right mm. the post-brexit ukip is going to be one that is going that is going to fight its war on culture yeah. and I think that's a really is a strategic move because I think even if you were to have like a second referendum I don't think UKIP would be able to kind of carry the whole pro-Brexit thing again I don't think they really have the capacity for it mm. but the cultural war is a different one because it's really only fought on the internet mm. and they've been able to mobilise people very well online because they've tapped into like these conspiracy groups and stuff and those kind of right-wing influencers are very happy to help them out I also think they're quite well place to be the sort of acceptable face of internet bizarreness do you know what i mean so like in terms if, if, you're, if you're saying this is a political party that's going to engage in the culture war yeah like the conservative party is to a limited extent trying to engage in the culture war yeah i, I think i think they don't know quite how to do it and they're, yeah. they're trying to suss it out but they're they're like terrified of the fact that yeah um, very broadly speaking young people are backing jeremy corbyn yeah um their base is aging and they don't really have a numerous young yeah. base, and so they're thinking, how can we, yeah. how can we sort that out? And and you're seeing some little nods towards kind of culture war politics. I think what's interesting though is that maybe the strategy isn't even like electoral performance. Mm. It's kind of like we were talking, we were talking before about Raheem Kassam like running for like mayor, or even what's his name, Paul Golding, when he ran for like London mayor. Mm. There was no expectation that they were going to win, and I think they knew from the outset that like they weren't going to win. Mm. But it was more just like being given a platform to kind of talk about these batshit internet conspiracy theories while also riding on the coattails of like your followers online because they are the ones who will give you clout and they're the ones who will kind of amplify your message mm-hmm. and at a time when like these influencers like you know don't listen to newspapers don't read magazines don't like read like watch cnn and stuff like that like we're the real news even though really what they're doing is commenting mm-hmm. on other people's news like mm-hmm. you know the fact that they've been able to do that and like their videos are getting, you know, 100, 200,000 views a pop, 
that's where I think their battle is. And I think they know that it's going to be there. Now, the good news, to a certain extent, is that that is sort of limited. That's sort Mm -hmm. of limited in terms of, like, how far you can go with that. But the bad news is, obviously, just because it's limited in terms of space doesn't mean that it's not dangerous. In fact, containing it might make it more so. So when you think of, like, Thomas Mayer, the man who killed Joe Joe Cox... Mm -hmm and how much like right-wing internet really influenced him or even in more recent times like the Toronto incel guy who was pretty much radicalized entirely online and stuff like that or um, Darren Osborne who yeah. attacked Friendsby Park Mosque yeah. he had a Tommy Robinson tweet printed out on his dashboard of the van that he rented yeah to then drive into people printing out tweets man wow yeah like who does uh. that <laughs> it's like it's a very it's like obviously a really dark detail but it's yeah. also like who the fuck is printing out a tweet yeah <laughs> yeah so even though you can contain it physically that still doesn't mean it's not dangerous and i think that's kind of where we are at the moment mm. my big fear when we talk about the beginning question of like how does it feel to be online mm. i always wake up with this sense of dread like what if something happens and like the conversations around internet culture when it comes to that mm. and at the same time if something does happen what about like responsibility right when you take like someone like Darren Osborne, and there is a lot of evidence to say that okay, he was radicalized online, even if like he wasn't directly a member of a group or something. The fact that like that content was in his proximity and it's constantly being amplified, so you become very paranoid. Mm-hmm. And then the paranoid people, the ones who like maybe do have like really severe like mental health problems, or they have like you know very severe like psychological problems, but they are being influenced by that material too. That can be the really dangerous stuff. So when the Darren Osborne stuff happened, like Paul Joseph Watson was very quick to distance himself mm. from all that, despite the fact that he spends like every day tweeting out like stuff that basically implies that there's like a Muslim takeover that's go- that's about to happen any moment now. Mm. All these people were just like very quick to distance themselves. And they got away with it. That's the thing. They got away with it. They weren't really held accountable. And when we go back to like things like Radio 4 and stuff like that, I think for a lot of like old-time producers, old-time BBC people, they don't really know how to interact with that. They don't really know how to engage with it. Yeah. So you've got this situation where people who do understand internet culture and do understand the dangers of internet culture are not in the mainstream media, aren't really treated that seriously. They're still kind of treated like as like the oddball young journalists who don't know what they're doing right and the ones who end up getting invited to like the british press awards and stuff have no idea what the hell is going on and then they wonder like oh how could this have happened so even within like mainstream media there's still this kind of huge amount of like miscommunication if that makes sense let's turn to some of those examples did you hear raheem kassam on the today program there's nothing far right about us you know i'm i'm a muslim immigrant background chap from from uxbridge in west london steve is a virginia democrat he was a kennedy democrat we have no truck with ethnic politics we have no truck with racialist politics we, we don't touch that stuff at all it's not in our for me like the first mistake was he comes on there introduced as someone who used to be Nigel Farage's sort of right-hand man or whatever, who's recently been in America raising money for Tommy Robinson. Yeah. It's like he's not been in America raising money for Tommy Robinson. He's a fellow of the Middle East Forum, yeah. which is like a really strange neoconservative think tank that yeah. like is really fixated on yeah, yeah. Islam. You know, in the past, has like raised money to defend Gert Wilders from legal action, yeah, that kind of thing. So it's like they have been funding the campaign to free Tommy Robinson. So like that's obviously his like that's his connection. If you're going to get him on as a guest, yeah, which is like 
you know, you can have the debate about whether that's right or wrong. Yeah. If you're going to get him on, why would you talk about Nigel Farage? He's not really particularly relevant to it. Yeah. So that was one thing. She then sort of said, oh, but aren't you far right? And he, <laughs> and he was like, no, no, I'm definitely not. Yeah, yeah, And then that yeah. wasn't really challenged. It's that kind of thing where you just, like, where journalists will challenge someone and then when, when once their challenge has been ignored, yeah. they, like, just move on to another point. So then she... So then, I'll go back to the far right point, but then she goes like, oh, but isn't Tommy Robinson a criminal? It's like, hang on, you just said, oh, but aren't you far right though? And then when he said, no, I'm not, it's like, oh, right, well, Tommy Robinson's a criminal. It's like, no, like, pick him up on the sort yeah. of point you're challenging him on. So yeah, he, he said, oh, we've got no truck with the far right. We've got no truck with ethnic politics. Yeah. It's like, you were the editor of Breitbart, which was also not mentioned in the introduction. Yeah. You were the editor of this, like, racist website. A, the, a website that had tags for black crime, like one tag called black crime. Yeah. It is frustrating, isn't it? It is frustrating. And I honestly don't know what goes through like producers' heads because I've never I've never worked at the BBC or anything. Let's sort of do that thought experiment because like I think the argument is it's almost like quite like paternalistic in a way. It's like we are the responsible media. Yeah. And if we don't get this guy on, which in truth, like a fair number of people respect and we want to hear about this. Yeah. Then you know, you're not going to hear Raheem Kassam challenged by um, a professional BBC journalist who knows how to handle an interview. You're yeah. just going to hear his own unalloyed voice on his own, yeah. you know, social media. Therefore, it's actually much better to get him on so you can challenge him. Yeah. I don't know how I feel about it, but I guess one thing is if you are going to, then you should definitely actually challenge. I mean, there is that tricky thing about like being a state broadcaster, part of your charter being like neutrality. Mm. Like, political ideology cannot be, like, neutral, right? You can't... I, yeah. I personally don't believe you can really talk about it in neutral terms. It's a real challenge um, to the idea of, like, balance. And... Because when you talk about balance, it's kind of like you're talking about... But it can it can encompass so many things. But if you're talking about just, like, a news event, for example, if you're doing, like, a package on the Grenfell Fire, for example, mm-hmm. you know, it's one where you say, OK, we're going to give, like, the council an opportunity to speak mm-hmm. and challenge allegations made to them rather than I'm going to do a whole show from the perspective of the council. Yeah. Because you know that London Review of Books essay that got a bit of controversy. Andrew Hagen, yeah. Yeah. And I think that's kind, of, that's kind of where we need neutrality to be. But when you're talking about, like, political ideology, especially when it comes to, like, neo-fascism, stuff that, like, they would even reject calling neo-fascism for, like, very deliberate reasons. If you're going to be a reporter who does a really good job at explaining this type of stuff you have to really know your shit mm. so like at buzzfeed like joe bernstein charlie warzel they really know their stuff mm. because they can navigate that space they can also like cut through the bullshit as well mm. but if you're like a radio 4 presenter or even a producer mm. and you're working on like multiple stories and maybe you don't have the time to do that you might slack off a bit but the problem is is that if you slack off a bit like that can have huge consequences. Mm. If you're John Humphreys and like you've been doing this job for like decades and you just don't give a shit anymore, mm. or like your kind of legacy is enough to carry you through, mm. you don't really think about the consequences. And the thing is, like, there aren't really no consequences for John Humphreys, right? Mm. With this stuff. No. But, you know, when you give these guys a platform and it's very kind of lazily challenged, that has like really long term consequences. Mm. Um, and they know it. Like, you know, Raheem Kassam knows it, like the right wing guys know it. They won't, like, admit it publicly, or maybe they even will at some point, but they understand how, like, old-school media works. We have to bear, remember also that, like, Raheem is still friends with, like, the guys at Guido Fawkes. He's still, like, friends with, like, the Bow Group and, like, all these, like, institutions that have, like, buildings in Mayfair. Mm. Um, very much part of, like, the media establishment. Mm. 
Um, they understand how the game works. They understand how the system works. They have all the inside tracks. So to kind of even consider them to be like stupid enough that they they would crumble under like John Humphrey's like lukewarm questioning, yeah. you know that's a joke, right? That's always the argument. Like, oh, if you expose them, then then they'll sort of crumble, and everyone will see that actually far right ideology is bad. And it's like it never really seems to happen. No, if if anything, like it just makes them like stronger, right? Even like Milo has like who kind of got the worst kind of beasting, mm. like has still like survived. He still like does stuff. To he's his still, fans, yeah. Yeah, he's still got I and mean, that that fan base is still pretty big. It's mm. still a pretty big online fan base. Even if he doesn't have like Coke brother money anymore. Mm. And all it all that did was like signal to the rest of them, but okay, we've just gotta like be a bit smarter. Yeah. And that's the thing, I think a lot of people like wait for these guys to slip up. The idea being that we're so smart that they'll slip up at any moment, they'll hang themselves and we'll kind of walk away like triumphant. And I think we're in a culture now where like people don't care about that. I I, I describe politics as like more akin to like My Little Pony fandom <laughs> than like conventional politics. Just in the sense of like, you know, do you know what like stan culture is? Uh, well, when you like back something. Yeah, or like when you're like really into bands. So like, you I know, totally stan for that uh, you know, K-pop is really big for this, right? Yeah, they yeah. have like these huge international fan bases and like so much patronage like to like particular members of these like boy bands and stuff where even if they do stuff, it's like super fucked up like, they'll still, like, manage to survive it because you have stands who, like, stick by you no matter what. And there's only, like, a few circumstances where you can lose, like, all your fans, you know, in one go. And that's usually, like, paedophilia-related. Yeah. Um, Or it's, like, something to do with, like, abuse or something, like, overt abuse or something like that. And I think a lot of politics is kind of more akin to stand culture now in that you have these really loyal fan bases who will tend to stick by you no matter what Unless you do something that's like really, really messed up. I mean, we're, talk- we're talking about um, the hypothetical possibility of a journalist doing a really good job against one of these people. Yeah. But there's also just a sort of like breed of journalists who are just like fawning. And did you, did you see the Telegraph political editor's uh, interview with Steve Bannon? Better jobs, better wages, but also entrepreneurial finance to give them yeah. access to capital. Pure Thatcher, isn't that's it? pure Thatcher. And by the way, she's the inspiration for that. Her and her and Reagan, but more Thatcher because so she was for more, Trump. Yeah, I think so. Steve Bannon, like the kind of leading intellectual of whatever Trumpism is, he's just like letting him talk and going, yeah. uh huh, uh huh, yeah. yeah. And he's saying all this stuff that is like, like pseudo fascism. Yeah, yeah. And um, the political editor of yeah. one of the largest newspapers in the country just going mm-hmm, yeah interesting yeah. yeah yeah you know what i would say that i'm frustrated but i'm not because like i think this is just something this is something that's been happening for a long time and when we talk about like normalization of the far right well where did it yeah. start do you remember when like nigel farage used to come to the telegraph like on a weekly basis to do like his own facebook live right back in like 2014 or something like that. that and like he was like he went to barclays brothers like dues and everything there's like, a couple of other examples as well well he's yeah i mean he's got his own lbc show now yeah, yeah well he's yeah he's had his own like lbc show for years despite the fact that like he is basically you know he did an Infowars interview in the lbc studio yeah which, what? <laughs> and that's one of those things where it's like, if he got sacked for that, it would be like a free speech issue in inverted commas. Like, that's how they present it. Yeah. But it's like, and I'm not saying that we should let like big corporations police our politics exactly. Yeah. But at the same time, it's just like really basic being an employee. Like, yeah. if I did an interview on the Daily Stormer, like on a, just casually yeah on a vlog in, with the in, vice logo in, 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 the, the, in the vice office yeah they would fire my ass like immediately <laughs> yeah that would be very interesting 
You know what? Actually, you make a good point about the free speech thing because this is like really at the core of it, right? Yeah. Really at the core of the culture war. How they've kind of really embraced the whole like free speech issue, made mm. it super disingenuous, mm. but have kind of run rings around like the establishment, mm. um, establishment media. Well. Yeah. To an extent. To an extent. Yeah. To an, to an I think the left kind of jumped on very late when it came to it, and there's been lots of leftists who have been like, you know, we should have paid more attention. And we should have reclaimed it because, like, it could have been such an easy battle to win mm. because they use it so disingenuously, right? Yeah. And it was just something that, like, lots of leftists ignored, but also lots of centrists ignored it too. When, um, you, when you say they use it disingenuously, let's, like, sort of unpack that. Yeah. So what, what are you saying, disingenuously? You, you don't think they really believe in free speech for everyone? No, I don't think they believe in absolute free speech. Or, But they, they kind of express it. I think there's different avenues to it. So you've got like the spiked lot who kind of say that we are absolutists in free speech no matter what. Mm-hmm. But the majority of their content will be these kind of really hyped up scare stories about how like university students are restricting free speech on campuses because they don't want like race realists to come speak. Mm. Right. And their thing is like, it doesn't matter how offensive a speech is, we should let it happen. Now, do you want to extend that to like if someone came and like just was advocating like, you know, racial segregation, for example, or or using the N word like openly, Mm. um, you know, and I don't think they would I don't think they would go that far. I think they would then acknowledge that, okay, there are restrictions in the same way that Milo did as well. Like Milo's whole stick was like free speech no matter what. But in an interview, he was like. I might like not say the N word. Like mm. that would maybe be a bit too much for me. Mm. Um, but I wouldn't mind if someone else did it. I would defend their freedom of speech. So it's kind of like putting that consequence over people when it comes to hypothetical situations. There was something on like The Daily Show where Jordan Peterson was asked the same thing about like the transgender issue. And like, I think the problem of challenging is like several fold. Number one is that the people who are like free, like who are so-called free speech advocates, they do it on their own platforms. Mm-hmm. So you'll look at like Sargon of Akkad, you'll look at Paul Joseph Watson, you'll look at some of the other like red pill factions. Mm-hmm. And what they'll do is they'll end up getting another one of the red pill lot to come on to talk about free speech. And they'll do like a two hour live stream about how like all the leftists are like stopping them from saying like the N word in like rap songs and stuff like that, mm-hmm. you know, and it'll like rack up loads of views, but the conversation will go nowhere. And then you have, like, well-meaning centrists, Mm. in my opinion, who, like, want to kind of... They want to find the middle ground. They want to, like, you know, say, okay, well, you know, we want to have someone who believes in absolute free speech and someone who doesn't to come in the same room. But for the most part, those people who will agree to those conversations, like... They're not really that important or essential. Mm. They're not, you know, they don't have like these big online platforms for it to matter. So you end up having a lot of these like empty conversations, which are largely like pretty like self-indulgent for the most part. Mm. They're like, you know, we, you know, the whole like we can agree to disagree. And what it ignores ultimately is like the fact that speech is power, right? Mm. What we're talking about when we talk about free speech isn't the freedom to kind of say what you want. Because mm. I think that's like a pretty well protected. I think there was a Guardian long read a couple of weeks ago, which is like we live in a time when like f- speech in the West as freer than it ever has been Mm. the conversation we should be having is about platforms who has the right to platforms and more importantly like what happens when platforms give you power now Mm. a really good example of that happened this week right with infowars and Mm. facebook instagram pinterest and stuff taking down their accounts now paul joseph watson is still tweeting about how like this is a big huge free speech violation and how big tech is colluding to basically destroy dissenting political ideas it's very far-fetched it's very stupid it's very funny at the same time but i think that argument would have made more sense 
or it would have been better on his side if he had recognized that that was actually the conversation that you're having because by kind of saying that okay this is a platform issue well okay let's talk about platforms let's talk about who deserves a platform and who doesn't does everyone deserve a platform in which case you know why are certain groups invited to speak on campuses and not others should we have like restrictions when it comes to violinism coming onto campuses or anti-vaxxers or like just any sort of like weird subculture that could like inherently be violent right Mm. if you've got enough of a following to say actually no we're just listening to the ideas of these people you know and this was you know back when i was in university like from 2010 to 2013 the islamists were the big issue right Mm. you know the idea of like inviting people from like groups like mend and iera and stuff were the things that caused protests like you the ukip society like picketing a you know so-called islamist speaker giving like a talk about like good manners because they had like some tenuous links to like the muslim brotherhood or something like that yeah. that was what it was like in like the cameron years right yeah, yeah. and now these guys are the ones who are like oh we i supported free speech all along everyone should have a right to say regardless of like who it offends and stuff like that yeah i think the fact that it's ukip kind of actually shows the contradiction yeah really because um talking about sagan Makad, the yeah. youtuber uh did you see his his like vlog where he was like i'm gonna join you i'm not joking this is not a meme i'm being completely serious he's talking about he's gonna join ukip and so yeah. and so is pjw and whatever because free speech is so important and ukip is the only party that's standing up for it yeah and so so i think sagan of akkad does like believe it yeah and i think he genuinely is a free speech absolutist right At yeah least. and so the thing that really angered him that made him want to join ukip the, the example he gave in that video was that um, certain like drill musicians had been given like basically asbos yeah or whatever the thing oh really okay yeah yeah and so they had to apply to like for a sort of like license or permission for the police yeah. to write music um, drill music obviously being sort of quite a nihilistic type of rap that yeah. is being accused of like encouraging violence encouraging violence and it's obviously like quite linked to like criminality and stuff. Yeah, yeah. And he was like, fuck that. I can't believe the idea of like some kids having to apply for a license to the police to to do music. Yeah. And I'm thinking like, yeah, that is fuck. Like, I don't think you should yeah. have to get a license from the cops. It's like, OK, so you're going to join UKIP. It's like, can you imagine what a UKIP government's attitude to drill music, drill music and like non-white teenagers who are like maybe involved in criminality and, yeah. they're, and they're right to like express I mean they're themselves. the ones who are basically advocating for like deporting their families right mm. if like their kids do something wrong so I don't think they'll be that open to drill music or grime music or anything like that yeah as if the UK government would be free speech absolutist see like, I wonder in, how in a real sense like I, that. I wonder how disingenuous that motivation is if he like chose a deliberately because stu- I don't think he's a stupid guy I think like he is he's an intelligent guy mm. sort of knows what he's doing but if he had chosen like a really stupid thing like you know campus lefties or something like that people would just be like okay like you know shrug a shoulder so maybe he chose something different the thing and that's the thing you can advocate for free speech you can advocate for free expression without joining ukip there are lots of avenues that you can take to do that you can support youth charities you can support you know studios you can support artists who like in their music talk about being arrested by the police right there's lots of things you can do without joining ukip which just makes me wonder like hmm uh, you know. Yeah, yeah. 
in terms of free speech, like the whole Boris Johnson calling people who wear burkas uh, letterboxes. Yeah, I mean they're yeah. now they're now trying to sort of say that's a free speech issue. Yeah, which I mean, I, yeah, but I mean, he does have the freedom to say that. It's that people are saying you fucking shouldn't, you crass asshole. Yeah, and again, <laughs> that's also a thing about power as well, right? I was trying to explain this to someone yesterday, which is that this is like the fucking former foreign secretary, mm. possibly prime minister to be, mm. like. Someone who has a significant, like, former spectator editor comes from, like, establishment stock. He has, like, a platform that no one else does. In the sense that, like, there are lots of, like, niqabis online who are very vocal about their choice to wear niqab. Mm. Some of the stories they say is, like, I chose to wear it even if my husband didn't want me to because this was a choice that I made, right? Mm. It's a really difficult explanation to people who don't understand, who don't come from the same context as me. But... It's very similar to anyone who chooses to, like, get, like, a tattoo or something like that or chooses to wear, like, certain types of clothing and garments. And I shouldn't be interrogated for, like, my choice of expression and identity when no one else does. And I think the defense that people have said is that, well, you know, the burqa isn't really, like, the niqab isn't really, like, a form of clothing. It's, like, a form of oppression, right? Mm. As if, like, fashion hasn't, like, had a history of oppression for, like, a long time. Mm. And, like, no one understands how, like, the origin of, like, women's clothing, like, modern women's clothing, like, is this hugely controversial issue. You know, it's a really disingenuous argument. And it's one that we've had over and over again. And I think this is more sinister this time because, number one, this is a guy who has just, like, had a meeting with Steve Bannon, Mm. has very evident political ambitions, and is almost definitely, like, preparing to take out Theresa May. And if he thinks that this is a thing that's going to work, this is a thing that's going to, like, tell the country that he's just one of them and he understands everything, he's going to be, like, British Trump... That becomes like a power issue. That's not a free speech issue. That becomes like an abuse of power and like picking on a very vulnerable group mm. of people to do that. Yeah, because it's women wearing the veil who are like the most targeted in yeah. terms of Islamophobic abuse. Yeah, and they also live in like really poor areas. Like in Bethnal Green, where I work, like, you know, it's one of the highest percentage areas of like women who wear like niqabs and stuff. It's also one of the poorest areas in London. When it comes to Islamophobia, like Telmama produced a report for the first time in like five years offline Islamophobic abuse was higher than online Islamophobic abuse and the majority of that happened to women who wore veils and who wore headscarves. So the number one victims of Islamophobic abuse are women and they are empowered by comments like this. We hear stories all the time about like, you know, men who try to rip off like women's headscarves or like, you know, pull down the face of like women's niqabs and everything. The most visible form of like Islamic identity is the one that's being most attacked and like Boris Johnson knows this and also his colleagues know it too. So the fact that he's using this as, like, a power play is a really disturbing thing. Yeah, and he just thought he would, like, glibly well, just throw that in there as, yeah. a little, as a little dog whistle. It will work. He's got, like, a bunch of defences in, like, all the right, all the places that you'd expect. Brendan O'Neill wrote, like, two columns, not just one, but two columns about it. One thing that we didn't we didn't talk about, and I know that we're we're kind of running short on time, but like you know, the bookmarks bookshop yeah. got attacked. It's like in the same in the same week that this has happened, we're talking about like freedom of speech and also like attacks on speech and expression. Like the fact that there's been so much silence over that, mm. like an actual like bookshop being attacked. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, whereas this the the niqab story got like a whole day's worth of coverage. And that, by the way, that bookshop attack that was by people who argue for free speech yeah they're free speech people one of them is part of the part of like make britain great again and one of their manifestos is full free speech yeah it's fucking ridiculous it's absolutely ridiculous thanks to our guest hussein kazvani 
The British Dream was produced by Sam Bodham at Rethink Audio. Until next time, stay positive and keep the dream alive. Mm-hmm.